the Cambridge Marketing Podcast with Kieran Kapoor. Brought to you by Cambridge Marketing College. See their range of courses and apprenticeships at marketingcollege.com. Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Marketing Podcast. Um, This week we are talking all about brands and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back Daryl Fielding. Um, Daryl has been on before and in fact has the most downloaded podcast of all the podcasts I have done. So welcome back, Daryl. Um, Daryl um, has a portfolio brand career. She's also a charity CEO, and she's the author of the brand book, which she describes as a how-to guide. Um, and it's becoming quite a definitive publication on branding and advertising. Um, this year, Daryl was featured on the Channel 4 Mad Woman documentary, which I've got to ask more about in a minute, as someone shaping the advertising industry in a career that includes senior roles at agencies and brand owners. And Daryl has led strategies and implementation for global and UK brands, including the Labour Party, Ford, Dove, Cadbury's, Milka and Vodafone. So it's quite a portfolio that you bring to us. So if there was one person I could have invited on to do a sort of branding podcast, which I have to say has been quite a popular request from listeners, um, I'm delighted it's it's you, Daryl. Um, can we just start with what a brand is? Because it's one of those sort of guffy words that we throw around a lot in marketing. So how would you describe a brand? Yes, well, when I wrote the book, I decided I would do a bit of research and decided to Google, um, you know, kind of what is a brand. And after about, four, you know, there was about 14 million answers. So I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to write my own. Um, so I think to keep it very, very simple, a brand is a combination of the product or service and the reputation that establish itself in the mind of your customer or user um, that drives choice. Um, in that individual or or obviously groups of individuals um, that adds value to the organisation in some way. So to make it even simpler, it's the thing and what people think about the thing. Um, So that's the simplest uh, of definitions, I think. And I worry a little sometimes that brand becomes all very about the execution and the and the sizzle and the the sort of the marketing and all of that but actually it is a very fundamental concept that it underpins almost every business and every organization and it because it is what you do and what your reputation is and there's not a chief executive in the world that doesn't fundamentally care about that And I think it's important that we bring the conversation about brand back to that place, because otherwise we get sort of depositioned as the colouring in department worrying about, you know, things that aren't fundamental. And a brand is a very fundamental um, um, aspect of any organisation, business or membership group, you know, whatever. There will always be a thing on what people think about the thing. And what I love about that is that you haven't mentioned colours and logos and all the things that we get caught up with with branding. You know, ask someone about branding and they go, oh, it's a logo. Well, no, it isn't. It's so much more than that. And I also like yeah. that you said it was the reputation in the customer or the um, somebody buying from the business. It's not what the business wants it to be. Yes. Well, those those individuals can be very different. I mean, interestingly, I did a talk at a, a schools conference a few years ago and, and one of the um, delegates said, well, I don't need to worry about a brand because I'm a headmistress of the only secondary school in town and my customers have no choice. And I actually said, well, could your staff work anywhere else? 
And she went, oh. So often it is about who you employ. You know, there is still a thing in what people think about the thing and who the people are. Maybe your employees. It may be the, the people who, who use the service. So, you know, that, that um, you know, kind of ecosystem needs to be quite well thought through. And, you know, people do have to care not only about their consumer brand, if you like, or their customer brand, but also their employer brand, you know, especially if you're an organisation that's delivered by people. So I think, well, let's knock a few things on the head before we really sort of go into how you build a brand. So is yeah. branding just something that big companies worry about? Absolutely not. Um, you know, and that's why if you get back to the fundamental definition, um, you know, it is the product and what people think of it, or it's the service and what people think of it. And that is irrespective of scale. Um, you know, in, in the book, I illustrate every example um, for somebody starting a restaurant in a seaside town, you know, a small business. Um, it could be a food truck. Do you know what I mean? It, it could be somebody baking cakes from home. They're still going to be doing or making something. And they still um, would hope that people have an expectation or a preference for that product or service that over time they will build. So I think the concept of brand is actually, um, you know, scale neutral. I don't think it is only for big businesses at all. So if I was starting out and I thought I need a brand, where do I start? You know, I'm making cakes at home or I'm starting a marketing college. Where do I start with brand? Well, I think you have to start to, to start with is what you're actually going to do. What's your product? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and if you are tossing up between baking cakes and starting a marketing school, you know, you sort of might want to fi figure out, you know, what your goals and ambitions are for both of those enterprises and pick one. Um, but, you know, once you decide, right, I'm going to open a school or I'm going to start a business baking or open a restaurant, then you, you have, if you like, a starting point. Um, at that point, you then have to some answer some questions about, well, what sort of school cake restaurant is it? Um, and what am I going to be competing with? And I think people don't spend enough time worrying about what else their customer could be spending their hard-earned money on. So, you know, there's no point if you're in a seaside town opening a pizza restaurant, if there are 20 pizza restaurants already there and the market is saturated. So have a good look at, you know, the customer that you're seeking to serve and the competition and then really sort of torture test, you know, what you're intending to to launch against that context. It may be, but very much rarer, is that your initiative is totally new to the world and you have no competition. Probably won't last, but, you know, it could be it's a totally uh, new innovation. So you just have to figure out what it is we're going to do to start with who your customers are and what they might want um, from a service such as that. And then you start to figure out, well, are we going to be a posh one? Are we going to be a cheap one? Are we going to, how are we going to position ourselves in this market to that customer? Um, and you start to build, if you like, your, your positioning statement. Who are we aiming to, to, to use the product? you know, what are their unmet needs or wants or desires that we're going to fulfill? How are we going to fulfill them? So you figure out, if you like, your position in the market for that uh, that service or product. Then you start to go, OK, what are we going to call it? And actually, it's really interesting because quite a lot of companies have started out being called something else. Amazon is actually the third name that uh, Jeff Bezos picked for the company. Um, and so, you know, you, you would want a name that reflected 
to some degree, you know, that that position, um, you know, whether you're going to be, you know, pizza popolare or pizza premium or Posho's pizza or whatever, you know, you're going to have to figure out how does the name that you're going to call yourself help you to 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 be preferred in the mind of your customer or to be chosen and chosen by your your customer. So you then start to figure out all the other things that you're going to do that will create that product and that reputation. And there's quite a big list of those things. But first of all, what are you going to make or do? What are you going to call it? And once, you know, and who are you serving with it, I think is are the, the most fundamental things um, at, at the most basic. And then you start working on things like, you know, what products are we going to make? We're going to make pizzas. Are they going to be organic? Are they going to be um, you know, customizable? Are they going to be how, what sort of, what, how are we going to go to market with this, this product? What's it going to be like? What products are we going to make? What products are we not going to make? You could be a vegan restaurant. We're never going to have anything from animals. Um, you know, then you start to build out on all the other aspects of, of the brand. And, and that's quite a long list. So I could carry on talking for the next. <laughs> 30 minutes without interruption on that matter, but you might like to ask some specifics. So, you know, if you're starting a business, it, it's it, that's pretty much what, what you have to do. So I think there's two things I come across when people are starting business. One is that they either can't cut something out. I mean, how many times when somebody has a bright business idea and you say, who are you aiming it at? Who's your target market? Everybody. Oh, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and that's such a big problem. And then the other thing you get people paralysed with is, I can't work out what the logo is or what colours I'm going to be. I just can't get into that sort of the, the visual element of it. And I suspect what you do matters less than doing the thinking. But I'd be interested what you you feel. Yeah, I think you have to do the thinking up front. And actually, I find this when I get invited to assist businesses or um uh, advise, you know, everybody wants to rush straight to execution and they're very reluctant to spend the time thinking through all of the sort of, you know, theoretical or strategic um, aspects of it and making those strategic choices. We are going to be focused on families. We're not going to be focused on single people. We are going to be focused on holiday makers. We're not going to be focused on the local residents. You know, you have to make those strategic choices to start with because once you do, it makes all the other decisions faster. So you basically sort of go slowly and, and methodically to start with and then you can go really, really fast. But to businesses who always seem to be in a, you know, mad, tearing hurry, um, that feels like you're trying to slow things down. And I can promise you, you will know what colour you should be if you do the strategic thinking. Otherwise, it's like, well, you know, the loudest voice in the room likes pink. So that's what we've got, you know. So um, even a colour brand is, is is much more thoughtful, I think, than people ever, ever realise. What colour are your competitors? You know, do you choose to be the same as them or do you choose to be different? You could choose to be the same because everybody in the category has to be a particular colour, you know, for whatever reason. You, you, they're, they're not obligations, they're choices. Or you could go, everybody else is green. I tell you what, we're going to be orange. You know, it, it is a very and it seems very silly. But, you know, once you've had that sort of, you know, competitive analysis and looked at how are people going to make a choice between us, there are many, many, many aspects layered upon layer that would would influence that choice. But if you don't think about it properly, 
you're going to be in what I call, you know, a discussion which has all the sophistication of a tis-tisn debate. Well, I like pink. Well, I like blue. You go, <laughs> for God's sake, what colour, what sort of colour should we be for good reason? Because we want to stand out. Interestingly, we did have exactly this discussion at, at Vodafone. You know, Vodafone was red. Its competitors at the time were all sort of blue palette. Um, and the organisation itself, we probably weren't going to not be red, but they were sort of trying to minimise the red because they felt it was a bit sort of garish. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Red is a, is a brand cue. We should retain that. We should fall in love with red. You know, red speaks to a lot of things about the kind of organisation that we are and it's differentiating. So in our customer experience centre, in the headquarters where we bought big corporate clients, I don't want a monochrome palette. You know, I don't want to be overwhelming red, you know, but I want some red in there. So, you know, it sounds as though that's a, a, a rather, um, you know, sort of trivial debate, but it was one that was had, you know, in a very, very large company about how the colour it was should not be something that's sort of trying to, to diminish, but something that should be cherished. So you used the phrase brand cue. So can we explore? Did I? Oh, yes, you did. <laughs> What does that, I mean, I suspect it's obvious, but what does that actually mean and how does that mean in practice? Um, well, I think that you have certain things about a brand that the customer will recognise more than others. And I think those are the things that signal. It's a signal that it is your brand as opposed to another brand. And colour is huge. I mean, people diminish it. If you are an FMCG brand, you know, the colour of your packaging is a fundamental brand uh, aspect of your brand or brand equity. Um, Cadbury Purple, Cadbury have been to court over the use of their purple. It is a trademarked colour. Um, and, you know, if you went down the chocolate aisle and wanted to pick a pick a bar of milk chocolate, you would probably be, you know, intuitively as a customer looking for the purple ones. Now, everybody's purple tile now because, you know, purple has become a cue for milk chocolate. Um, but, you know, that's an example of a brand cue. Um, a triangular shape for Toblerone, for example, would be a very strong uh, cue. And actually, there is, you know, you don't get very many triangular chocolates. It's again, it's something that is, um, you know, partially trademarked. Um, so, you know, what does a customer just sort of spot about you know, your brand that will make them think, oh, that's an Apple or, oh, that's a Samsung or, you know, oh, that's, you know, this particular pizza restaurant. You know, what are those signals that are just going to elicit them to think about the brand? I mean, one of the things we have to bear in mind as well is the customer is not agonising over this. They have better things to do than fret over your brand. That's the marketer and brand director and chief executive's job. You know, if we're lucky, we work ourselves to the bone, you know, and then, you know, somebody might just prefer you than the one that's next to it, you know, but it, it, very rarely are our brand selections really agonised over. Sometimes, yes, for high consideration purchases, but but most often the customer is, is not somebody that is agonising over that choice. No, you're not usually standing in a chocolate aisle agonising about whether it's going to be Cadbury's yeah, milk just grab or it in Mars. the basket yeah. and get it yeah. home and think, oh, damn, I've bought Sainsbury's <laughs> or Cadbury. Yes. So oh. you, you've obviously worked for some, a huge variety of organisations. So you, you've already mm. talked about sort of Cadbury and Vodafone, but you've also got Ford in there as well. Is the mm. branding, is the way you view branding different? Is the way that branding is done different? Um, well, um, 
no to the first question and yes to the second. <laughs> um, so uh, I think the principles are the same no matter what, you know, um, but, you know, how you choose to implement is almost infinitely variable. So, yes, I mean, I think you apply the same thinking to to any brand, um, you know, and that thinking is, is, you know, I have a system of thinking about it. There are several systems, um, you know, that, that um, different companies use, but, you know, Getting it simple, getting it down, getting it well thought through, making those strategic choices and then going into implement implementation, you know, it, it is is what it's all about. But the process, I think, is very similar. The outcomes are hugely, hugely different. So can we explore some of the outcomes and the different ways that you might go? And this is going to be really hard because it's one of those really broad questions. Should we choose a company? Would that be easier? Oh, go on then. <laughs> We've talked before about chocolate bars, so let's talk perhaps about Ford because that's totally different. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about one Ford brand in particular, which which is one of my, um, you know, I have experience of doing it. So it, it, it is always perhaps better to talk in practice and in theory. And we had to do um, an advertising campaign for the Ford Transit in the um, end of one particular model's life. Um, so normally what happens at that time in the life cycle of any vehicle is as it becomes a little older in design, there's massive discounting at the end of its life. Um, but we chose a very different path for the, for the transit at that time, um, where we actually um, investigated what really what you know, customers felt about the brand. There was a sort of popular narrative that there were no brands in the category, um, that really all that mattered was the amount of load that the vehicles could carry and that, that customers really didn't care as long as they could get the paints or the pallets or whatever was put, put in, in the back. Um, and we were having a conversation about this and I just didn't quite feel it rang true. And one of my teams said, yes, but people will still pay you know, £20 more a month to lease a Mercedes. And I'm like, well, if that's the case, then there are brands, aren't there? And let's go and find out what is special about transit. Um, and what we found really was was a difference in respect between um, Mercedes drivers and transit van drivers. And often that was controlled by the fleet manager in a big organisation. And what one fleet manager said to us is, oh, well, I, you know, I, I always give the uh, transit vans to the young, young bloods because it can take a beating, you know. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, that was quite a an insightful comment that that the, the you know the, the the transit van was not a brand that had a lot of respect and yet it was the biggest brand in the country so um we decided to go down a path with the brand campaign and the, the campaign for the, the the transit which restored pride and our creative brief was you know we want to um bring a tear to the eye of, of transit drivers everywhere and make mercedes drivers feel really guilty um and that's when we came up with this idea that transit was the backbone of britain now i think that is it's yes it was an ad campaign but it's an incredibly powerful brand idea because our vans were the fabric of the nation they were ambulances they were building the millennium dome at the time that tells you how long ago this was um, and, you know, they were, um, you know, the Variety Club used them to transport people to their events, you know, the small businessman, the baker, the, you know, the butcher. Um, and we did the most wonderful uh, ad campaign celebrating the transit. 
and um, it ran. It's the only commercial I ever did where the client never demanded one change to the first edit we presented. Um, Jack Nasser, who ran the Ford Ford globally at the time as a global chief executive, Ford said it was the perfect commercial, which I thought was a great compliment. Um, and even better, they didn't see the drop in sales before the vehicle ran out. Um, and I think I'm right in saying that the the estimated value of that uh, the, that lack of decline was about five hundred million pounds. Gosh! So you know that was something that was well thought through. It was insight driven. It connected incredibly well with the nature of the product, and it did something to address its reputation. Um, so you know, if if you like uh, that as an example of a piece of brand building. Um, I think is is really uh, interesting, and I think I'm right in in saying that they've actually resurrected that idea after you know some years of not using it. I think it, they're back at it now, and and I think it was a really um, an idea that could could endure. Mm. Um, it didn't so much, but I think they're now running it again. Thank you, and and it's a really interesting idea about taking something that perhaps is at the tail end of its life because again I think we tend to think all the glamour is only that model rather than the brand but but we tend to think of of brands always being the glamorous front end and (laughs) and and you've just proved that actually doing something about the branding can make a massive difference to to the bottom line and it was the first sort of emotional Mm. ad in 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 the category everybody else was a picture of the van with pots of paint in the back. I mean, it was so homogenous. You know, you kind of go, one of the things that, you know, you have to consider, and this is where you do all your strategic thinking is, you know, what's everybody else doing? I tell you what, if we just do that, how's the customer going to make their mind up? Well, I'll tell you how. Price and distribution, you know, availability. Um, So if we want war on that front, fine. But if we want to build a brand, maybe we have to give customers another reason to, to choose our product. So it's back to this idea of selling the the benefits, not the features, isn't it? You're you're selling a, a the emotion around it, the ecosystem around it, not just um, uh, the sort of this. Uh, you know, this is now a number of paint pots you can get into the back of it. Yes, which does matter, you know. But at the end of the day, you know, if you can't get your paint pots in it, you're not going to buy it, are you? Mm. So really and truly, that's going to come at a later point, you know. <laughs> Um, unless you have got the biggest capacity in which case you might take a different direction but you know if if you're just advertising a hygiene factor it's unlikely to to help that top end uh, consideration to be on the short list you know so uh, just to keep it the the width of the branding going so we've we've gone for ford is there another example in a completely different industry that you could illustrate again going through the process and coming out with a, a branding strategy or branding outcome. One thing that um, I often get asked to talk about is the Dove campaign. And of course, what it was most famous for, and rightly so, was its championing of real beauty, of using a very different, um, you know, casting in it in its uh, execution. But that notion of honesty actually went deeper in, uh, into the product uh, philosophy as well. And this is something that perhaps is less talked about. Um, and we made a decision to um, not use what, what was called emotive ingredients. So we wouldn't claim that a moisturiser had aloe vera in it that soothed your skin, if that 
aloe vera was not present in sufficient quantity to, to, to perform that function. So we would be much more, um, you know, kind of honest about the claims made for our products. Um, and we developed a whole product philosophy that, that went alongside the Real Beauty campaign um, in um, in conjunction with the R&D team at, at Unilever um, to make sure we had products that really did work, but we weren't misrepresenting why they worked in, in on the packaging um, and, and in communication. Um, so, you know, they would firm your skin or improve the appearance of the skin, and that's what we'd say. Um, they wouldn't dry your skin, but we wouldn't make spurious claims like it had some, you know, sort of fake ingredient. And that's why it did that thing. Um, and that was quite a radical move as well. So, you know, people know us very much for the the the, the work we did on on how we represented women. But it did go deeper than the advertising, that particular uh, strategy. And then I did say at the beginning, I was going to have to come back on a mad woman documentary. I have to ask Daryl, what was that? <laughs> well, it's obviously a reference to the series Mad Men. Um, and Channel 4 decided to do a documentary about um, women in the UK who had, uh, you know, made a difference in the ad industry. And um they selected seven or eight of us who'd done something that they seemed to think was was remarkable or, or were, had a good story to it. And, and I got picked to talk about the Dove campaign. Um, so, um, you know, there's there's other women who, uh, you know, for example, a lot of the Lynx work, which is 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 very different to Dove, um, was done by was actually, um, you know, one of the creative team was female. Um, similarly, um, the Levi jeans commercial, I think, was also written by a woman, which people don't realise. So, um, you know, there was there were some many fabulous women in the documentary um, that uh, that that the Channel Four chose to write about and their contribution to the ad industry. So that's why I get a little shout in there, which is very very gratifying. Um, before you go, I, I think one of the other things that worries people about branding is if they get it wrong, you know, and they, they know what, what happens then. And you've already alluded to the fact that Amazon is in its third iteration of name, which I, I didn't know. So presumably you, you can change things or can't you change things? You pulled a face when I asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think timing is everything, you know. I mean, Amazon changed its mind about its name before it was famous. So, you know, if, um, uh, it contrasts that perhaps with Elon Musk's rebranding of Twitter. I, I, I'm not sure, um, you know, that that is going to serve the business interests of the company. Well, I mean, he's a billionaire. I'm not. He may be right. But um, I think if you are going to make mistakes, try and do them early on and figure things out before you know, things are very uh, public. And there are some, you know, really uh, interesting examples, I think, of, of, of brands going slightly off piece, but course correcting quite quickly. Um, you may remember, and I can't remember which version of the iPhone uh, it was, but they brought out cheaper versions in multi-bright colours um, and it didn't do so well. And so I think they've they've reverted back to a slightly more sophisticated, more beautiful rather than cheerful iteration of the iPhone. And, and I think they perhaps realised that that direction had not served them as, as well. Um, and I think the beginning of the end with BlackBerry was probably when they brought out a pink one. 
Um, now, I, you know, that is my opinion. But, you know, you some mistakes are fatal. Um, and I think it just depends, um, you know, how badly it impacts your your reputation at that time. Very famous example of Gerald Ratner uh, speaking at a dinner. He was a jeweller for those that don't remember that brand. It was a high street jeweller retailer. Um, and he said publicly that the products they made were crap. Now, I'm not going to be proposing to my girlfriend with a ring from a company that makes crap. And, you know, that was a very injudicious remark that got widely reported by the press and actually did, did the business a huge disservice. Um, so, you know, this is in the days before social media. Now, it, you know, reputation can be impacted really quickly at scale. So organisations do need to be very careful about what mistakes they make, but it's mostly about timing and scale. Um, you know, so yes, you know, you, if you, if you're, if you've got your strategy, you're less likely to make mistakes. And if you do, you sort of understand why they may be not quite as you'd hoped. And, um, you know, you can't be paralysed by fear and never do anything. You can't be overcautious, but you do have to be thoughtful and, if you do something that doesn't seem to serve the organisation or doesn't go well, you have to have a bit of a, um, you know, a, a proper think about why did that happen and 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 not do it again um, unless it's absolutely catastrophic. And there have been examples in business history where, you know, there have been catastrophic errors. You know, try not to bet the farm, try not to you know, get the chief executive denigrating the product he makes. I yes. mean, you know, you'd think people would. <laughs> you know, people would get that. Yes, I mean, Ratner's never did not survive. It's not my hashtag, what is wrong with you people? Um, you know, might get a following. I don't know. I'd hate to have all my mistakes paraded in public, so maybe that's why I'm not doing it. Yes, and you can also see an example of somewhere like a KFC where they actually, they, the, a chicken restaurant that didn't have any chicken, and they came back yeah. within the brand voice of, yes, we messed yes. up. And handled yes. it beautifully. Yes. Yeah. I think going into sort of silence or denial or trying to manipulate something, you know, is generally not the best way to go if things are, are, are going a bit wrong. Um, I think the public doesn't expect perfection, but they do expect, you know, a respectful honesty much of the time. And I think... You know, one can recover from from a problem. I think where it is more difficult, actually, is is where the problem affects what the public are actually um, using. So there was um, a problem some years ago with benzene in Perrier water. And, and of course, that's going to have a, uh, you know, perhaps a more catastrophic impact on, on their sales. Um you know, if it's uh, something, um, you know, perhaps more to do with the corporate reputation, it might not be so damaging to the sales. And, and I remember that when I joined Kraft Foods, I joined shortly before they acquired Cadbury, which was a very unpopular acquisition in the UK. Um, and, um, you know, but... You know, the public were waving placards outside Westminster, but the sales of Cadbury didn't diminish at all. Um, so that was interesting. But I think if there had been a problem with the product or a, if there's a problem with a product, then it will that reputation will affect your sales. Even if it's rectified, 
you know, you're going to have to do quite a bit, I think, to rebuild trust in that product if if what's happened and what's gone wrong affects the product. Now, it would be a big difference, I think, with chaos if they had no chicken than if they perhaps had had chicken that had caused food poisoning, for example. I think how they dealt with it, you know, it, the, the way they dealt with it as they did would not be appropriate if the problem had been different. Yes, actually, that, that is an extremely good point, isn't it? Because one held it up as this brilliant example, but you're quite right. If, but, you know, if it depends is, what's gone yes. wrong. Yeah. You know, I mean, we had a massive product recall at Mondelez because a baby had choked on one of our biscuits and, um, um, you know, thankfully hadn't died. But, you know, we, we chose to spend a lot of money recalling all the product, even though we went further than we had to actually in that circumstance, because I think we could foresee that if anything else happened and it was worse, it would massively affect our, our reputation. And it all boiled down to the, the nature of the, that particular year's wheat crop and the consistency of this biscuit. I mean, you know, sometimes things that happen in companies are, are you know, quite um, uh, fascinating and, and organic in a way. I, I find all those stories of why, why a product turns out a little bit harder than it used to so that it could be mashed by and eaten by a baby under four months. And then suddenly, you know, it's slightly, slightly less mushy. And, and then we just only discovered that once something had happened. Um, so, you know, there was a full, full, full investigation. And, and I think the company behaved incredibly ethically and responsibly about it. And of course, anything you're going to give a, a, a child, but particularly a baby, has got to be exactly above our reproach. reasoning. We can't take any risks with, with that. Yeah. But so, you know, what you do, you know, I think if we'd published some sort of, you know, F star star K, it probably wouldn't have been on tone. For company but you know you wouldn't do it under those circumstances would you definitely not you know maybe few would have been passing you know few the baby's okay you know thank god but we still have to take action yes yes maybe yes i i i do take your point and i think it's a really interesting view about you talked about course correcting and it's it's also part of stepping back and going where does that brand fit here um, yes, and common sense has got to prevail. You know, common sense not as common as often believed. Yes. but you know, it, you really have to kind of think about the cus- put the customer first. I think would be my you know, and then take your decision. You know, ahead of putting the company first. I think yes, you have to protect the company's reputation, but not ex- at the expense of customer safety or or things that really really matter. Daryl, this has been wonderful because what's been great is that we haven't talked that much about just logos and we've talked a little bit about colours. They are all important, though. You've got to get all those other bits right. You know, those all those elements, layer upon layer upon layer, do need to be managed, thought about and consistently applied. Otherwise, these poor people in the world who don't think about you very much won't know what to think. Because if you don't, you know, goodness (laughs) help them. But the word there is surely is consistency, I consi- yeah. consistently applying. I mean, I, I wouldn't yeah. not buy a coffee because I didn't like the logo or the colour. I would not buy a coffee because I didn't like the, where it was or the fact they don't mm-hmm. pay taxes or something else. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't just be, oh, well, their logo's orange. I don't buy coffee with an orange logo. No, but it might help you find the coffee in a rush. You know, there's there's some real basics in marketing that that you know, uh, and brand building that people often perhaps consider less than the more, you know, sort of um, elegant 
philosophical things, you know, people have to be able to find your product on the shelf. And if having a bright orange logo helps you go, well, that's the one I get normally. You know, people aren't, you know, people are racing around a supermarket to get home to their, their kids. You know, they're not always that thoughtful. Um, so, you know, one of the things that a logo or a colour can do is help with that recognisability, you know, and that is quite important if you buy something in a hurry. If you've got, you know, games on your phone as an app, you know, in-app purchases are probably funding that. Which one you pick probably, um, uh, you know, is, is a business driver. And if it's the one that's sort of more bright yellow or whatever, or stands out more or more recognisable, then you'll choose it more than the one that's a bit more recessive. So, you know, often these things are just about that sort of spontaneous choice. And, you know, you wouldn't, you know, if you, you know the, the, the one with the orange logo are the evil child exploiters, then you'll avoid it, won't you? But it is about that. How do I how do I select? And, and that's often quite a quick and thoughtless process. And that's where it makes a very, very big difference. Which I suppose partly depends on the type of brand to come back to that type of product that you're selling. Because if you're selling something that people take time over, you know, I mm -hmm. say nobody wakes up one morning and suddenly goes, I need a marketing qualification. You're going to have decided, gone down a process to decide that as opposed to, gosh, I need a chocolate bar. That's a different, yes. different feeling. Yeah, I think that every day. Gosh, I need a chocolate bar. <laughs> Just the once a day. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> Daryl Fielding, um, author of The Brand Book, which can be found um, at all good bookshops and also on Amazon. Uh, thank you very much. That was an absolutely fascinating insight into branding. And we've gone down some great highways and byways there, which was wonderful. Thank, thank you. you. Well, I hope you, hope you have a good rest of the day. Thanks for thank having you. me. I enjoyed it too. Before we finish, um, people might not know this, but you can now watch the Cambridge Marketing Podcast. Um, you'll find us on YouTube or via the link on the podcast biography. Um, please do leave comments, questions and suggestions for future episodes on, um, on YouTube. And you can always contact me via any of the Cambridge Marketing College's social media. I do listen. This podcast came out of a request from listeners. Could we do something more on branding? So we do try and respond to requests. Daryl Fielding, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. The Cambridge Marketing Podcast from Cambridge Marketing College, training marketing and PR professionals across the globe.